the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you The Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. Join Martin as he conducts regular Q&A sessions on topics of interest to Christians serious about their faith. These Q&A sessions will continue to cover an ever-widening range of topics, all with an eye to honoring the command to let all things be done unto edification. Hi there, we are live again here, September 16th, 2018, broadcasting from Georgetown, Texas, with the 50th edition of Chalcedon's Q&A and Little Meat of the Word. Done this 50 times, feels like we've only done it 47. So, we have uh, six questions that popped in uh, online, and we'll take these first, and then we'll take the live questions. Hey Gwen, good to have you here, ground control's in place I see, that's all good first question was a very interesting one. I had a question on my mind about the biblical concept of gleaning and what are some ways it can be incorporated today. It's just one of those topics I know I've read about from Rush but haven't delved into. I want to be better prepared and able to help others and I'm interested to know how do we seek to apply this principle in modern times considering no one today would go to a field to glean. What could gleaning look like in other areas? What is happening of course in our modern world setting aside the agricultural in, uh, application of the gleaning laws, is that, using that metaphor, most businesses harvest all the way to the edges of their field. In other words, they take every single penny of uh, return and apply that to profit. So in essence, there is no gleaning, there is nothing left over for the poor uh, as a result of this. By the way, that gleaning uh, goes more elaborately even than that. It's uh, more radical concept from the standpoint that on the seventh year when the fields lie fallow, no one's allowed to, uh, the owner's not allowed to harvest them. However, gleaning is still permitted. And there's a lot more material to glean, not just the corners, the entire field is gleanable in the Sabbath year, the land Sabbath. This perhaps is one of the reasons that Israel violated the land Sabbath laws for 490 years. 70 times 7, God forgave them for their violation and then uh, forgiveness, there was no more forgiveness. And uh, they were exiled to Babylon, as Jeremiah declared from the Lord's mouth, My land shall enjoy her Sabbath, she shall rest. And that means that there were 70 years during which, uh, Sabbaths during which the poor would only be able to glean the corners versus the entire field, which would have been okay for them to do at that point in time. Gleaning was not uh, set aside during the uh, uh, this, uh, land Sabbath year because the poor, that was their only source potentially if we weren't obeying the poor tithe, for example. So that's an interesting idea. So what would it look like, uh, and I thought of an interesting example of what it could look like, or at least some clues here. Uh, the example I'm going to give is not a good one because they're actually doing something a little bit different, but the principle could be adjusted in a way. That is, if uh, you were to buy a, um, uh, a name for a website from GoDaddy during the process of um, filling out your bill and saying, okay, I'm going to pay this, and they say, well, this comes up to uh, $48.22. Would you like to round it up uh, to $43 and use the extra pennies to donate to a cause, say? 
Uh, and if you say yes, then you know they'll say, okay, then we're going to go ahead and segregate off this extra seventy-eight cents, and it's going to go to uh, a, a good cause. So in essence, by increasing the amount, they say, well, we're going to add a little bit more to the field, if you will, and that we're going to give to uh, alleged uh, charitable causes. Now, true gleaning would be you'd be taking some from your own field, not asking for more from the the buyer of the uh, website name. Uh, the URL, uh, you would be literally t taking a different tack. You would say, okay, uh, we're, go uh, we're going to scale down and round down, say, forget the pennies, and we're going to take that amount and then make that available to the poor. Now, uh, all businesses could, in principle, do this kind of round down thing and drop off the pennies or the round down to the nearest $10 and say, this is the corners of the field for the poor. This represents not as harvesting all the way to the last penny, which means going out to the very corners of the field to the last um, tree or a shrub or plant that's there, vegetable or fruit. We're going, um, going to go ahead and leave those for the poor to take. So it's, that's on just one aspect of it. You would be, in essence, uh, in, uh, making the availability there. Now, the other thing that would be missing which is not missing in agricultural gleaning, is it takes some effort to glean. And if you read the book of Ruth, you can see that it takes some effort to glean. Uh, and therefore, it's not just here is uh, some Federal Reserve notes. That would not be a, a, anything close to what gleaning is. There'd have to be some labor involved. So it'd be a set aside, but not to give away, but rather that it would be, you'd have to come up with some way for work to be done in exchange for which then, uh, in other words, it would take some effort to acquire the reserved capital, but be set aside for the poor, and the poor we'd have to have some kind of mechanism, uh, whatever it is, we'd have to work out the details of it, but they would then be able to then extract that, and it would be their fair part. So you could have the equivalent or an analog of gleaning in the modern world if you cared to pursue that. I believe we should, I believe there's every principle to have it uh, done that way, because it's not always the case that the poor tithe will necessarily um, wipe things uh, clean completely every single time. There could be sh little shortfalls here and there, and gleaning would be a, resu uh, a solution for poverty and again. So uh, that's what we need to do is develop this all from scratch. In other words, we've made the transition from a agricultural civilization to an industrial one to a technological one, and our application of the Bible has not followed suit. It has fallen far behind. Uh, we kind of said, well, who needs these Old Testament laws in the first place? And consequently, we have not done the necessary homework to see, hmm, now that we have this new technology and this new way of doing business, how do we bring gleaning into the picture so God is honored and God's law is kept? Because in essence, if you really are in your business uh, accumulating every single last penny that you can develop uh, out of it, then you, that's saying that your business is not like a field and that God has got no part to play in uh, bringing you the energy and strength and the wisdom and the smarts and the uh, uh, all the other resources to bear to make it possible that you are refusing the poor any of their portion from it. So to reject gleaning or to ignore it, I think, is a problem. But we already ignore the poor tithe already today. Uh, and so consequently, uh, we have a world of hurt. Until we return to the law of God, we're going to use humanistic solutions, and that's how uh, men heal the wound of the Lord's people lightly. And it is a false bandage, you know, a compound fracture, as I usually say. So we have to move away from that toward the essence of this. And I like it because it means people are ask, asking these questions. How would we apply gleaning today? And that's a good question to ask. 
I mean, it's a good question to have a good answer for, and therefore we need to develop the answers and then apply them. It's one thing to say, uh, Mr. Sarberti proposed a hypothetical idea on the fly that showed how this could potentially work, but if no one's going to go do it, then what good is it, except it just sits on the table as another way that we can disobey God, in essence. If I came up with an answer that actually God thought was smart and appropriate, and we all ignored it, then it's, we're not walking in the way. We're, we're doing a lot of talk and very little walk. So it's time to reconsider gleaning and how it applies, especially that, uh, Sabbat, that land Sabbath year. How does that work out exactly? Uh, again, Israel was so greedy that they refused to stop uh, running their fields and harvesting them and, and growing stuff from them, and they forced the land to work continuously, and God forbade that. And they were warned about it, and they didn't care, and they paid a very, very high price. And they also paid a price for violating the poor tithe, and then they were so... Uh, intent on doing the, th the right thing under Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah, got them on the right path. Uh, and so for a couple hundred years after that, they stayed the course doing things biblically. And then by the time Christ came, they had deviated and eroded. And there was a general decay of obedience and honoring of God thereafter. And then they paid the supreme price with the destruction of their capital city. So gleaning, not to be neglected, time to do some legwork. You would think with all the reconstructionist minds out there, uh, we would start to work out the details of it. We've, uh, there's some pioneers in the area of how dealing with poverty, and now it's time to bring the gleaning aspect back into play. Uh, and uh, I know there's some very, very uh, sharp scholars out there who could easily uh, start working, uh, thinking outside the boxes that currently uh, contain and restrain our way to think it through. Second question came in in person uh, yesterday. <laughs> Ironically, it doesn't happen very often that someone comes to visit me and uh, in the process says, could you put this on the docket for Q&A? And here it is. The question is, how should we take Proverbs 18.1? What's the proper interpretation? Because there are two different readings of it. It's radically different, say, in the, the Geneva Bible. Let me just uh, pull that up so you can see. The Geneva Bible in the King James and perhaps the Young's literal translation uh, are almost unique in how they, they, they render it. The Geneva reads, For the desire thereof, he will separate himself to seek it and occupy himself in all wisdom. Now that sounds like a good thing. This is what we call the positive interpretation, that someone will separate or isolate himself, presumably from the crowd, the madness, um, wicked crowds, uncaring crowds, multitudes, because we were told, you know, don't follow the multitude to do evil. And the multitude doesn't often speak the right thing, as we well know. Uh, and he will seek uh, and have a desire for wisdom. And he will seek it and he will occupy himself in all wisdom. King James, sort of like that, through desire a man having separated himself seeketh and intermeddleth with all wisdom. So these uh, interpretations or translations of the text seem to imply a, a very nice good thing that is appropriate to um, um, set aside time for yourself to study, to show yourself a workman approved, say. You can pull all sorts of parallels from scripture. However, every single uh, translation other than these puts it in a more serious way. Uh, it's more like this. He that separates himself seeks his own desire and rages against all sound wisdom. See, in other words, uh, the uh, person who uh, isolates himself uh, wants to hear nothing about uh, the received customs and traditions and wisdom of the people and uh, rages against them, literally shows his teeth against it. Uh, he 
confirms himself in his uh, hermit existence, if you will, in his isolation, in his refusal to participate in these things. Ha! Uh, one of the contemporary English versions, it's selfish and stupid to think only of yourself and to sneer at people who have sense. Uh, so you can see there's some confusion as to what this uh, verse means. And uh, the negative sense, Horton in the Expositor's Bible actually spends uh, five pages of very small eight-point type expositing it almost as a sermon just on that one text on the assumption that it's a bad thing. Though even then, he says, of course, that would, it would mean it would be wrong if someone isolated himself and set himself aside to work out a cure for a disease, for example. How can we say that he's... Uh, um, a misanthrope, right? That would not be a misanthropic thing to do. You could be do something uh, or pin down an important truth for mankind to gravitate toward and to build upon. Uh, so he says that so we have to make realize that there are altruistic reasons for someone isolating himself and, and uh, dedicating himself to focused study because that's what's going to require for the goal that he's seeking. And if it's a good goal for all mankind, then we would say, well, he's, we shouldn't attack him for isolating himself. He might be losing out on the benefits of fellowship, but uh, if the end game justifies it, maybe that works. But that's about as far as he was willing to go. Uh, one of the scholars, he says there's actually three different interpretations, and I'll uh, bring this to your attention. He, he likes the translation best, who reads, He who separateth himself from others seeks his own desire and rushes forward against all wise counsel. <clears throat> and he says, So taken, the precept is, as we should say, a warning against self-will and the self-assertion which exults in differing from the received customs and opinions of mankind. So Rosenmuller and Berto. Also, it should be pointed out that the next verse is very similar. Uh, Proverbs 18, 2 rings in a similar idea uh, that uh, someone is uh, not patient to uh, delight in wisdom. In other words, he despises it and only wants to speak his own mind. Uh, so if these two verses are correlated, if they're, really, uh, they're actually connected one with the other, then this would justify that reading and the negative reading. Then he brings up the point of view that's represented in the Geneva translation. Uh, second option, he who separates himself from the foolish unlearned multitude seeks his own desire, that which is worthy to be desired, and mingleth himself with all wisdom. He says, Abin Ezra and the Jewish commentators generally take it that way. And then, the, uh, interestingly enough, he says, the Septuagint and the Vulgate, the Latin, seem to have followed a different text and render a man who seeks occasions wishing to separate himself from a friend shall be always open to reproach. That's not nearly close to the meaning. So what's interesting about the second of the idea, the positive view taken by the Geneva, is this, that the idea of separation is the word farash, where we get Pharisee from. The Pharisees were the separatists of the time. They separated themselves from the multitude. You can actually see that they didn't have uh, a very strong view of the people. Uh, as for this mob, cursed are they uh, when they are speaking to um, uh, in, in John 7 specifically. They, uh, they, they did not care for the mob because the mob, of course, was going after Jesus. <laughs> and so they were rabble and, and they, they didn't care for it one iota. <clears throat> so there we have it. Do we want to, uh, if we're going to take this in a positive sense, like to Geneva, certainly we have to realize that uh, there, there's a danger here with the opposite position. That isolation for its own sake is not a beneficial thing. Uh, it's true if the multitude is in fact uh, running into error, isolation makes some sense, right? Uh, John the Baptist appeared to be a fairly isolated individual. 
<laughs> as uh, uh, hermits go, and yet we're not going to condemn him for that specifically. That was part of his mission. He had a specific calling that justified how he uh, ran that, uh, his life. And there was a complaint even to Jesus. He says, you know, Jesus points out in Luke 7.32. Let me get that. Pulled it up just because I was interested in it. This generation is like children sitting in the marketplace, calling one another, saying, We have piped unto you, you have not danced, we have mourned to you, and you have not wept. Then he points out that John the Baptist came, neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and they say he's got a devil. As if they were applying the negative sense of uh, Proverbs 18.1, which would make an illegitimate claim. Of course, then they go after Christ, who does in fact drink and and, uh, and uh, eat with his, the people, including people they don't think are the right kind of people, and uh, they condemn Christ as well. So you can't please the Pharisees, the separatists of the time. So the upshot is, if you want to go with, the, if you believe there's uh, safety in numbers, the vast majority of scholars believe that this is a warning against isolating oneself in terms of a self-will. And I've talked a lot about Warfield's comment that Tertullian was going to end up dying the head of a cult of one. And there is that, always that danger that you come up with a series of uh, unique views, idiosyncrasies, and then those isolate you because, of course, now you're going to reject everyone who doesn't follow in your box. And then they all become disfellowshipped, and uh, you're out there isolated and proud of it. Rushduni is always uh, warned against uh, this in terms of uh, some amillennial thinkers who rejoice in the small size of the church because the smaller the church, the more faithful the church. Uh, and that may or may not be true. It depends on the content of what's being pre preached, doesn't it? it? Numbers don't tell us anything. Content tells us something. To the word and uh, to the, uh, to, the um, te uh, to the law and the testimony, they speak not according to this. Uh, there is no light in them. That's how you know that it's you know, the shining of light. No one wants to see the light. Versus, they're talking to themselves, and people are tired of it. But it's an interesting question, isn't it? How do we take this verse? And I think if, regardless which way you take it, you must be aware of the context around that verse. If you're going to take it in the positive sense, better check out Proverbs 18.2 right behind it and make sure you're not falling in line with that because that would then be the counterbalance to the view that it's okay to set yourself aside for a deep, focused, dedicated study far away from the madding crowd, as they say. That's not going to fly really well uh, if you're doing it in the wrong spirit based on the next verse, which says you know, you're not really delighting in wisdom that's the opposite of what you're doing. You just want to uh, believe that you already have sufficient wisdom to broadcast it across the Internet like I'm doing right now. So I need to be aware of the hazards there, too. One must be uh, always um, on their guard as a teacher uh, uh, or pretending to be such a thing because uh, the, much is going to be required of us, and therefore I'm going to leave it at that, that there's two ways to handle that proverb. By the way, there's another proverb that's very, very similar in this regard. Most people know it as a promise. You know, uh, Train up a child in the way he shall go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. That's the promise interpretation of it. But some scholars who are aware of the actual Hebrew text say that could be taken in a different sense, in a negative sense, basically saying if you leave a child uh, to grow up in a certain way, in other words, if you're negligent in training him properly, when he's old, he will not depart from that bad way of doing things. He will persist in, uh, have uh, moral inertia and momentum that leaves him uh, in, uh, uh, badly equipped for life. So it could be a negative thing, saying uh, the, the habits that he picks up from his, life, his youth will then persist into, and he will not depart from these bad ways that he picked up when he was young from his parents. So it can go either way there too, right? could be a promise verse, but it could be a warning verse. Same thing here with Proverbs 18.1. Um, and therefore, 
we need to be careful in handling in the Word of God. Okay, the four final questions that came in online. How does a person who has been guilty of a capital crime righteously continue on in life since God's sanction has not been applied? Uh, that's a very, very interesting question because we have a situation where um, the capital crimes of Scripture are not being applied. But this was also the case in, uh, in the New Testament time. If you look at uh, the woman taken in adultery, there's no doubt that officially she was, in fact, guilty of a capital crime. But they did not have the adequate witnesses with clean hands to condemn her. So Jesus does make this comment. He says, go and sin no more. Uh, there was an obligation for her to make good on her life now that uh, she is basically realizing that she had a capital punishment over her. St. Paul had the same situation, guilty of uh, the murder of Christians because well, he persecuted the church even unto death. So he realized that the Lord chose him still to do a task, and so therefore he's, uh, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. He has an opportunity that uh, technically he's not, uh, would have under normal providential circumstances not been uh, afforded. So now that he has the, um, this extra time extraordinarily supplied over because of circumstances or God's calling, he's to apply his heart into wisdom, right? And he has to, that's one reason is that the Psalm 90, I think it's verse 12, is so important. It teaches to number our days, Lord, that we might apply our hearts into wisdom. If you realize that you are living on borrowed time because you were due a capital crime penalty, but the civil magistrate is off in left field and didn't apply it, then you really better number your days because each one is a gift that ought not to have been given to you, and therefore you need to improve them. In other words, you take them and you exploit them for God's good. Uh, because that, those days really are numbered in the sense that you should not have had them had God's law applied. And so now it's your opportunity to use them in a productive thing for your Creator and Redeemer uh, on the assumption that you're a saved individual. So that's, that's how you, you have to go about it. We have, uh, I think it was one of the uh, Manson family people was converted in prison and ended up becoming uh, a prison chaplain from the inside because he was never released, if I recall right. But the point was that uh, he turned his opportunity, because the death penalty did not apply in California at the time, uh, knowing that he said, it was, I deserve to die. I deserve to have been executed, but I have not. So I'm going to use every day that I have to serve the Lord God. And so it becomes an incentive, if you will, under these circumstances. So I think if God's sanction has not been applied, it's not for you to commit suicide and apply it for uh, the civil magistrate at all. That's not the calling. Rather, you are to interpret this as God has th thrown an interesting curve, the same one he threw to that woman taken in adultery, the same curve he threw to St. Paul and to others, uh, for me to then take this and give back to God the best way that you can with all the energy you have. Is there a biblical way for spouses to fight? Well, uh, I like the model. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Uh, Abraham and Sarah uh, certainly had a disagreement over Ishmael and Hagar. Uh, uh, God resolved it for them, but they obviously had some a very strong difference of opinion. Uh, and it's pretty clear that it's because Abraham, uh, his heart was for the, the boy. He says, you know, and, and God had to basically say, you know, do not grieve for the lad. It'll be okay. Yeah. But send them away, Sarah. Hearken unto the voice of thy wife, Sarah. Not all of us have God interfering directly, uh, intervening directly into our marriages, of course, but the point is that uh, they were able to continue forward with the rest of their lives until they were able to resolve the questions that um, created friction between the husband and the wife. Uh, and so there has to be a productive way to approach that. 
if there's deference, a mutual deference, which needs to be the case in all Christian marriages, then uh, arguably there's a place for uh, them settling on a solution that works for the for the couple. And if necessary, you can always have outside um, counsel. If uh, there's not enough spiritual strength within the family to resolve it, then perhaps someone can come in and assist. Uh, depends on what the issue is, of course. Uh, but then again, uh, I think we, if we look at models, then we have the best benefit of, of this way. Now here's an interesting thing. Um, Nabal and Abigail, how did they fight? Well, she pretty much didn't, didn't uh, <laughs> kept him out of the loop on certain things, like how he, she dealt with David and uh, David's uh, men, uh, which was probably to the good for the time being. So uh, she recognized problems with her own marriage and uh, went around the problems um, because she served God first and then her husband second. As long as we're putting that priority in place and walking in it accordingly, in balance, as opposed to using it as a pretext for a rebellion, we might probably are going to be in a good place. But it's a complicated question. There certainly are many unbiblical ways to fight, uh, for spouses to fight, and uh, that becomes much more problematic. There's a reason why uh, there's an instruction in Scripture about if you're going to uh, withhold relations between the couple, that should be by mutual agreement and for a season of prayer and potentially fasting. So th that is couched in such a way that it is not otherwise used, as they say, weaponizing uh, the sexual relation would be a, a not a biblical way to fight under this circumstance. So, all right, uh, second to last question. Do you think the idea of matchmaking is biblical and should Christians endeavor to help singles who wish to get married connect with other eligible singles? The deal here is that matchmaking can backfire. And uh, so the parties in question uh, need to be very, very mindful of the importance of the selection. It should not be made for them. Uh, they need to be aware of what they're getting into. They, that's why the principle of uh, the seven years dowry, if you will, that uh, was posed twice for that matter on uh, Jacob, uh, it's important, as Rashtuni said, you would look more carefully at a woman if you realize that she represented the uh, seven years of labor uh, on, on uh, the part of the person. So it meant that you were looking for a quality spouse. And so if matchmaking uh, sh uh, shortcuts that process of uh, the evaluation, vetting the spouse, uh, that could be potentially a problem, especially if you live in a culture where not all families are raising all their uh, uh, children, male and female, to be... Uh, sold-out Christians who would go to the mat and give their lives for Christ and, and walk according to God's law. If you're living in that kind of culture, you might, uh, the matchmaking or even um, arranged marriage potentially, potentially I'm saying, not insisting on it by any stretch, uh, uh, probably would work insofar as all the, the things that would make for a wonderful marriage would be there. Uh, and, uh, but that's not the case normally in, uh, because the foundations are destroyed, what do the righteous do? The righteous, therefore, must be much more circumspect in terms of selecting a spouse. Uh, and, the spouse and the other spouse saying yes or no, making, saying, are you the kind of husband I want? Uh, are you going to be God's man in our marriage? That's the main thing that has to come through. Not, do you have all your hair? <laughs> Things on this order. Uh, the superficial stuff is not going to matter come 20, 30 years down the line. So you're not going to get to the 50-year anniversary uh, with a godly heritage and seeing your grandchildren 
raised in the Lord unless you make the right decisions early on. So uh, now a matchmaker could guide potentially, and certainly guide away saying this is not, in other words, they're doing some pre-vetting, but there's a limitation to what the pre-vetting can do. We saw something like that launched um, in Calcedon's uh, reports pages for a little bit. We allowed a little ad to run. It was running out of Brooklyn, uh, and it uh, had some successes. I'm not aware of any gross failures that it had, but that certainly is always a possibility that it had a failure. Uh, the one matchmaking thing that I observed from uh, somewhat uh, in, in the mid-1980s, that marriage did not ultimately last. And so uh, just because you say, you know, this person and that person, they would make a good match. Uh, that could involve meddling on your part and uh, perturbing paths that otherwise would not have crossed and potentially not to a good thing. Now, you, you can be the Calvinist and say, well, God's providence said that was supposed to happen, okay? But why don't you learn from something bad happening in the consequence? If it did happen, then it would be an example of what not to do and what steps to avoid. So quality is the most important thing in a spouse. Their qualities must be uh, solid and can't be just fly-by-night or fair-weather situations. How is someone under pressure? When uh, uh, someone has uh, got everything being thrown at them, uh, does the true person then show up and you say, well, I had no idea that this woman was like this or this man was like that. Uh, you're going to find out in the course of a marriage because uh, marriage can be stressed by outside things, even internal things that come to light. Weaknesses are tested by a marriage. So character is what you need, and it's lack of character that tends to create issues in marriage. And it's very hard to gauge character when most of us live on a surface level with one another. Uh, we tend to know people through their interactions with us, and those tend to be controlled, and people put on a face. That's the word of hypocrisy. Hypocrite is to wear the face, and everyone sees the face, and that represents you, even if it's not you. So what's the real you? That's where pressure has to come in. That's where the testing of character. That's why Jesus is in the business of testing our character, even as Christians, as churches today. He's the refiner's fire, and he sits and refines the sons of Levi, and he purges out the dross. You want to get the dross purged out prior to, or at least as much dross as possible, prior to being at the wedding altar. Uh, there has to, it's best that there were tests of that relationship, uh, and I don't mean like a written through a multi, multiple choice test or something contrived, but rather real world situation where the, uh, the true nature of the parties in question who want to join their lives is manifested so they can each have confidence going forward. Not that they just say that they're Christian and they observe the Lord of God, because there are those who say and do not. Jesus makes this point. Uh, you know, in Matthew 23 and, and 22, uh, he says the uh, the Pharisees they sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatsoever they do, do as they tell you, but don't do as they do, because they say but do not. So they might be reading Moses, but they're not walking according to Moses. So it's too a spouse might be able to say all sorts of stuff about what they would do, but the reality is not that they can buy you flowers, but rather what happens when things get bad. There's a reason why the conventional vows say, for better or worse, sickness and health, because everything's hunky-dory when everyone's healthy and everything's good. But if it's for the worse, then how we... There's a famous line in Shakespeare, I love it. It's, uh, I think it's from King Lear. It says, when the sea was calm, all ships alike showed mastership at floating. I'd rather modernize that, showed mastery at floating, but... In uh, Shakespeare's day, they used the mastership as well as mastery. So when the sea was calm, all ships alike showed mastery at floating. But 
it's not calm seas you're going to have in the course of, of married life. You're going to be facing and confronting external problems, and potentially they have an internal impact in the relationship and then with your children, which then complicate things uh, and also bless things. So you, you have to extract that, and, and there is more to be done. So men and women of character, they sail through the rough seas, and the others can sink. Could you explain the second death? Well, that's a troubling thing. A lot of that depends on what the first death is. Uh, there's two interpretations. Uh, the second death has no power over the Christian. This is laid out pretty clearly in, uh, in the New Testament. Let's see, take a look. It's mentioned prominently in Revelation 20:14, right? That's uh, one of the interesting verses that tends to put the kibosh on getting away with things. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Okay, so it doesn't get any more definitive than that. The problem is that if this is the second death, and boy, it sure looks like it because it says this is the second death, uh, I have to take this at face value. And that means that this kind of abolishes the notion that the first death is a spiritual death and the second death is physical death and the third death would then be what? Yeah. So, and John wrote this, you know, he transcribed this. So talk about the first death, spiritual death uh, um, is... Uh, from the Gospel of John, 5th chapter, say, in other passages, um, allows people to say, okay, we're going to play some games with the deaths and the resurrections over here and uh, come up with a different twist. You're going to have to figure out a way around Revelation 20, verse 14. Uh, and that is a problem. Uh, Whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And verse 15, and that is what the second death is, eternal death, eternal destruction away from the face of the Lord, it's called. Uh, and that is the second death. So that means that the first death would accordingly, because the people have been resurrected, to stand before the Lord, the judgment scene just before, starting at verse 11, uh, saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, and whose face the, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. That's the end of the world. Earth and heaven fly away, gone. And there was found no place for them. There is, they're gone. That's the end of the heaven and the earth as we knew it. And then uh, the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books are open, and after that point is the second death. So in Revelation, so far as that's concerned, the second death is destruction, eternal destruction away from the face of the Lord in the lake of fire. But there's a lot of people who uh, have a vested interest in trying to re-manipulate these deaths by taking seriously the notion that uh, being born again constitutes a, a first resurrection, right? And then the second resurrection would be a bodily resurrection, uh, which, so far as that goes, those are true ideas, but the t names that we're attaching to them get us in trouble when we try to identify the second death definitively as uh, the physical death into the grave at the end of our lives. Uh, that would not make sense based on what Revelation 2014 is teaching. Now, I'm sure the people who can figure out ways to evade that, but that's the target. That's what you have to do. You have to figure out how such a clear statement in the book can be set aside safely. And I would be rem very remiss in attempting to do that. I would say, you know, that sounds awfully clear to me. Uh, I I'd hate to come up with a theology that requires me to set aside something so clear that says this is the second death. And I think, no, it's not. So it's either going to be John or me. And I'm going to stick with John. This is the way it's going to be today. All right, I don't know if we had any questions. Am I saying gleaning has to be a two-way street? Oh, I'm only saying, uh, in respect to the gleaning question, thanks for bringing that up, that uh, gleaning was not 
uh, a um, a handout because you had to labor to acquire the stuff out of the field. You had to go to the corners of the field and you had to bend over and work to get it out. You had to pick the fruits, you had to pick the peanuts, you had to pick the apples, whatever it was. You had to climb into the tree, you had to do whatever it took. Uh, and the Book of Ruth indicates that this is the case. So if we wanted to have gleaning in that same sense, because remember, Scripture also says, you know, whosoever will not work shall not eat, therefore gleaning, they can eat because it took work to glean. So they're not running afoul of Paul's instruction there on gleaning. Therefore, I think there has to be something, even if it's a bicycle with a generator that puts bad, um, power into a battery and says, if you sit on this bicycle and, and ride it for 15 minutes, you get a dollar for every 15 minutes you ride this bicycle and, and generate uh, so many uh, watts of power into the battery that runs this thing over here. Uh, and so people can just jump on bicycles and do that. I'm just giving a France one. I'm not telling, don't say, Mr. Cerberti says every business needs to have a bicycle with a generator in front of it. I'm saying it needs to be that kind of inventiveness, uh, whether it's, you know, clean this or do that or whatever it might take. But that money is set aside for them, but they, we, it's not just a, a, a leave a penny, take a penny uh, container at 7-Eleven. It, it's more complex than that. I think you are going to, if it's the giveaway, then there is no dignity involved in simply, then it becomes like an entitlement. But, you're, but if you have to work for it, it's not an entitlement. You would, and gleaning was not structured as an entitlement. It was entitled for, it was structured as something that required some level of effort to acquire, but it was set aside for the poor. You shall not reap the corners of your field. That's set aside for the poor to do work to acquire it. So too, I think we need to have, say, there has to be a sense in which the uh, proceeds of the business, if you take them all in, you've essentially reaped the corners of the field. You took every single penny and there's nothing left for the poor. You have to leave something there, but they're going to have to work to acquire it. And so then the, each bus individual business has to work out how that might work for that business. And that's where it becomes interesting. Or they could say, let's be inventive. There's five of us businesses, we can do this and have this excess cash, but only one of the businesses can actually use it. So perhaps we'll aggregate that capital over there. It's off our plates, and then they can go work over here. So you can be inventive. You can innovate a way to apply the law of God for today, a, a contemporary application. And we lack this so badly, and it's something that we need more leaders to do. See, we're just starting out. We're in the primitive church era still. I keep bringing this up. Warfield said it over and over again. He's in the 20th century. He said, we're living in the era of the primitive church. And in some respects, it very much shows. Uh, and it's time for us to then work our way into maturity. And part of this is to say, how do we uh, apply the law of God? After all, we're told in Psalm 119 that uh, I've seen an end to all perfection, but that commandment is exceeding broad, applies to everything. So we should be able to take God's law and expand and apply it. And the gleaning laws would be no less an example of uh, relief for the poor uh, on a general daily basis. And it would be useful for that. So... Uh, and then we have to figure out what to do about that land Sabbath. Of course, there is a uh, dis uh, all the debts are remanded and rescinded at uh, the seventh year too. So we have a difference in how the business cycle will operate under a biblical law. But it's going to be an improvement over what we have. It's just that most people love to be slaves, and being slavish in their hearts, they will persist in uh, uh, promoting and protecting their slavery. All right, I think a question came in. Yes. Stephen, good to hear from you. I was listening to a sermon by Brian Schwertley, this critique of a critique of theonomy, where he accused folks like Chalcedon of applying the regular principle in politics but not in church worship. Can you respond to that, like? 
I guess what the position is that uh, Dr. Rushduni was content with the articles at the time published in the Chalcedon Report by uh, St Reverend Stephen Schlissel. This was prior to uh, the advent of uh, Federal Vision things, which then set uh, things out of gear, if you will, in respect to uh, Schlissel and, and uh, Reverend Schlissel and some others. But the point was, at the time that he composed this, he composed a series about the informed principle of worship. Uh, and those were, and Dr. Rushdoney was content with that. He uh, endorsed the position that Schlissel put out there. And you could pull them all up. I think there's a sequence of it, several of them, where he uh, speaks about the informed principle of uh, worship, which says uh, the regulative principle cannot be applied in a ham-fisted way. There would be exceptions to the rule, and he gives them out. Because he uh, provided exceptions and then provided biblical support for those exceptions, he would be considered... Um, deviating from the regular principle of worship. Now, he sees himself as reforming the regular principle of worship and putting it back in line, realigning it with Scripture. And other people would say, no, 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 no. The, the point of the regular principle is you don't align anything or alter it. It's supposed to be the one non-negotiable. It's the hill we die on. Uh, and to that extent, then, Schlissel is leading a route away from that and uh, would be, therefore, a target for someone like Reverend Brian Schwertley. Uh, and therefore we can have a very uh, strong attack. Now, here's the deal. I believe that these two positions need to, to grapple with one another. I think they need to interact uh, and because this is an important question and it needs to be resolved by a debate uh, among the parties to it so that the... Because uh, uh, if each of us says there's a weakness in the other position, uh, then, then that requires that the thing be open for dialogue and discussion. And we would want that to be a, a constructive dialogue, uh, one that both sides have to also acknowledge the weaknesses of their own position. Most people have a problem with that. Uh, and then the other side to acknowledge the strengths of the opponent's position and then be able to then come to uh, a position where they said, okay, now that we have a respect for one another, despite our disagreement, we can then debate this and uh, perhaps help people uh, find the truth through it whether it veers all the way to Shortley's position, all the way to Schlissel's position, or somewhere in the middle, won't, we won't know until we have that discussion. But it's been basically laid on the table because what happened? Feral Vision came into play, and then, of course, no one's going to... That's now going to be the toxin that's going to make it impossible to have the direct discussion between parties that already have a uh, another big violator in the midst here, you know, a, a, a breach that's more severe even than regulative principle versus informed principle of worship. Uh, now, in favor of the informed principle of worship, I would simply say that uh, the, it, it does deal with the proof text for the regular principle and indicate that they are not being applied as actually written in the, in the Pentateuch and elsewhere, particularly the Levitical passages. So I'm not going to get into it right now, and only to say that uh, Ground Control might end up posting some of them if you wish to take an examination of what they are. And uh, that at least shows you that there was a stake in the ground, but I don't think there's a voice to defend it at the moment unless uh, Reverend Schlissel wants to, to pursue that uh, on his own. But uh, Chalcedon is at the moment sees other priorities over and against this. What should be happening and normally is happening is that uh, everyone is trying to work with one shoulder despite these differences. And I commented on uh, the position that Warfield had that just because he differs with the Baptists, he says we should not therefore withdraw the right hand of fellowship or refuse to work in uh, common harness 
with our Baptist brethren on these various points. So Warfield felt that he was, uh, that the, Augustus Strong was a brother beloved and that they should be laboring together in the field for the Lord, and that's the proper attitude to take. Uh, and I think that ultimately, uh, when it comes to our actions, we will see Chalcedon and Reverend Schwartley working together on many, many things, even while disagreeing over this point. But I said, because it's a point of disagreement, it's an appropriate area for debate and dialogue because it deserves, it's important enough that it deserves the time for, for someone to spend energy on both sides to say, let's deal with this. We can always talk to our, our respective choirs, right? Uh, people who read Chalcedon might be inclined to the informed principle of worship. People in uh, the regular uh, church, um, uh, informed principle of worship, uh, someone who's in the Reformed, they're going to speak to everyone who's there because they adopt the regular principle of worship. Uh, and they believe that anyone who is not is essentially importing humanistic things into the worship of God, and therefore it's strange fire and everything else. I understand how the argument runs. So each side sees the other as mistaken in a potentially dangerous way. Uh, one says you're, says you're opening the door, and the other side is saying that that door was not supposed to be closed in that particular way. So the informed principle of worship is not a, uh, anything goes at all by any stretch of the imagination. It, it's, point, it's pointed out that there needs to be a, a, um, a higher principle at stake than the regular principle of worship, which then dictates how regular principle of worship applies and what cases it is and what cases it's not like. That's the point. So it's not a matter of no regular principle. It is uh, what things fall under it properly, and that's where the informed principle of worship that Schlissel uh, wrote about and which Rush Dooney by implication endorsed because he edited it and put them out and was uh, thought that it was important to bring this side out. And because it dealt with the Old Testament passage in Leviticus specifically, uh, as you can gather if you pull Dr. Rush Dooney's Leviticus commentary off, you'll see that oftentimes when the uh, when com Rush is commentating on it, it's very similar to Schlissel's position. So the two are kind of uh, cross-pollinating their, their viewpoints there. Uh, yeah, that would be the first position there. Kevin's with us today. All right. Okay. And here's another question. Please comment. Did I, get, did I miss one from above? Let me make sure I didn't miss anything. Okay, I didn't miss anything. Please comment on how to interpret disasters like hurricanes in terms of God's providence. Why are many uneasy with attributing such occurrences to God? Well, I would be uneasy with it because that would imply judgment, and we want to believe that we're fine. There's no reason why God should send a single hurricane our way. Therefore, they must be the work of the, the devil or of just Mother Nature. Uh, that's where we take the concept of nature reified. In other words, turn it into an actual entity that's thinking, breathing, and, and malicious, if you will, <laughs> sometimes. So the point here is that we don't want to see God's hand in it. But like Warfield said, uh, every throughout scripture, from one end to the other, it's always God who sends the lightning to the mark. He says there's only one passage in all of the Bible where rain is attributed, has, is set in the passive word, uh, passive sense. It says where it raineth. Every other passage is God sends the rain. Only in, in the book of Hosea does it appear, the phrase, it raineth, just passively as if it happened by itself, which of course even then it didn't. But it's the one time that the biblical language uh, did not adopt the idea that God sent the rain. So rain comes from God's storehouses. That's the way it is. God, and the book of Job actually goes into great detail about how God uh, distills the water up from the oceans uh, up to the clouds and then sends it back down. The entire hydrological cycle is laid out there. It's also implied in the uh, first, um, first chapter of Ecclesiastes. I think it's verse 4, 5, or 6 in there where the cyclical nature of, of uh, what God has set in motion is there and the clouds are one of the 
Noah's thought the balancing of the clouds is expressed in the book of Job for the same point about how he distilleth the water up and pulls it up, evaporation cycle. And so it's all under God's to our direct control. Not one thing happens that's outside the bounds of God's control. Because at that point, if anything is outside of God's total control, it means that it has escaped its own Savior and Creator and God is no longer Lord over it. And that does not happen in a biblical worldview. So uh, God is the author of uh, physical evil. That's what is talked about in, we get to Isaiah 45. The passage talks about God saying, I create uh, light, I create dark, I create good, and I create evil. Now, this good is that's a physical good, uh, natural good, you know, sunshine, pleasant weather, and I create evil, the storms, the earthquakes, those are things that are, uh, but it's very interesting the, that though this was, everyone was aware of this, when Elijah was getting his training in the cleft of the rock, he learned that God was not in the storm. <laughs> he was not in the fire. He was not in the earthquake. Uh, those are but a whisper of his ways, it turns out. Uh, that's just, you know, the brush of God's fingernail on things, if you will. So that's where we uh, get the idea that God definitely is in control. Now, what does it mean? Now, it doesn't always mean anything because God certainly is sovereign, and he certainly is uh, within his realm to test things. An interesting sermon that um, was delivered by Andrew Sandlin while he was at Chalcedon, uh, he said, that was one of the most important verses in all the scripture, he said. And it's also hidden in the book of Job. And he says, and God sendeth the rain where no man is. And the question is raises, well, it's an interesting sermon topic. Why is that the most important verse in the Bible? And he says it's because of this. It means God's plans are bigger than man. God's plans extend beyond man's concerns. God is going to send the rain into the wilderness where no man is. Uh, and it specifically says where no man is. So man, no, no man's getting the benefit of this rain. But other things are getting the benefit of the rain. So God's plans are not just manward. We are not just a, the egotistical notion that God does everything purely for man which also extends to a, a very uh, crabbed idea of the um, renewal of the creation, uh, what's being talked about in Romans 8, 19 to 23. Uh, instead of taking Calvin uh, and Rashtuni, we take the notion that the only thing that's going to be around in the, in the second, uh, after the second coming are people. Everything else is, is worthless and gone. And apart from being uh, giving concessions to Neoplatonic thinking, among other things, the space ghost eschatology, as they call it, uh, it, it basically sees that God is uh, very narrow. You know, this whole idea that God is only worried about certain things and everything else is meaningless to him was set at naught in Isaiah 49, among other passages, because the Messiah is told, it is a too light a thing for you to be you know, my savior uh, to Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you as a light to the Gentiles, the whole world, because it's not enough just to be Israel's savior, uh, Israel's redeemer. So too here, uh, we have the issue that God sends the rain where no man is into the wilderness. Now, God will also put a shield and a refuge, a hedge out against uh, these kind of things. You're not going to have uh, the droughts and the storms that are destructive uh, based on premises that are laid out in the book of Leviticus, for example, uh, 26. And uh, you won't have wars. Uh, you won't have the sword going through your land. You'll have the blessings of Deuteronomy 28. It used to be, as Rashtuni pointed out, that when presidents in the United States would take an oath of office to become the president, the Bible would be open to Deuteronomy 28, and they'd invoke the Deuteronomic curses and blessings on the nation. And it's significant that I think the blessings uh, are like from verse 1 to 14 or 15, and then from th that point forward, it's, it's the rest of the chapter, up to 60-something verses, I think, is all curses. So the curses outnumber the blessings. Blessings are pretty simple and straightforward. Curses, uh, they uh, have uh, many, many different faces, as it turns out. 
Why is that? Well, because God made man upright, but man sought out many inventions, many devices, many plots, many contrivances. And so to nature, that's the point that's made in scripture, is that the way of the transgressor is hard. And one of those ways, of course, is that nature doesn't uh, give us the blessings we want. So we can have drought or we can have too much rain. In fact, we can have in that sequence, we can have droughts, so everything's dried up, and then the storms come and drive everything away and destroy the soil. So is there a sense of judgment in that? You would be foolish not to think that there's judgment on America, or virtually every nation on earth is worthy of judgment. Uh, I think it was John Gerstner who once said, uh, it, the miracle is not that things are so bad, it's that they're as good as they are, because it really should be, by rights, uh, far more judgment than we actually see out there. Uh, and we are drawing the wrong conclusions from God's um, uh, being forbearing toward us. God's forbearance is misread. And this is a point that comes up in Ecclesiastes 8.11. Because judgment against an evil work is not executed speedily, the hearts of the Son of Man is fully set in them to do evil. In other words, we misinterpret God's forbearance and not coming in judgment, and we actually continue, and that hardens us in our sin. Rather than being an opportunity to repent, which is how it's presented to us, like in Revelation 2.10 or so, we're uh, dealing with the woman Jezebel. I gave her space to repent, but she would not. So God gives opportunity to repent. He doesn't lower the boom immediately. Uh, even with Israel, he waited 490 years before he lowered the boom for validating the land Sabbath. Seventy times seven, God forgave them. And then the 491st time, there was no more forgiveness for the crime against the land and against God himself. So uh, the storm should be seen in terms of the fact that all of us are due judgment. Even David made the point of saying, let Shimei curse. It could be that God sent him to curse. Even though what he's cursing me about is wrong, factually wrong, uh, I certainly have done plenty of things that I'm worth being cursed for, if, if, but not necessarily for the thing he is. Okay. Christians were worshiping the risen Christ long before the Puritans showed up. I would certainly agree with that. Uh, well, I guess the point there is has to do with the, if the regular principle of worship was something that originated in the 17th century. Uh, then, of course, that would imply that someone was doing something wrong all that time. I'm not sure that Schlissel makes that point, but uh, to be ahistoric, as they say, is to, is not to neglect the history and say, and by the way, some people do that. Think about it. It was uh, uh, Hal Lindsey who said of Calvin and Luther that they were in darkness concerning prophecy. <laughs> said the man who has now been so wrong so many times and not even funny about prophecy, but they were in darkness. Calvin and Luther were in darkness about prophecy. So oftentimes, we, we, any time there's something new coming about, the new cult saying, yeah, nobody got this important truth of Scripture until we picked it up today. And, of course, wisdom will die with these people, too. Uh, let's see. Oh, good, yes. Uh, Peter Allison, my dear friend, Reverend Allison, is going to be leading the Book of the Month Club discussion. Where are we on time? Oh, seven more minutes. Book of the Month Club discussion on intellectual schizophrenia. Please do register for that uh, Peter is one of the great pastors. He's uh, a lot true shining light up in the north side of Houston. Uh, one of several that I know that uh, I, I hold in high esteem definitely would uh, be beneficial. He's uh, got the smarts on everything going on around here, and uh, I'm going to be listening in too. Uh, first off, that's a very, very important book by Dr. Rishtuni. I think it's his second book published in 1961 or so. Uh, first one was. Um, by what standard, and the third was Messianic Character, but in between was the thing, the book that set off the revolution, ultimately set the, put the seeds in that launched the revolution in Christian education. Yes, there was some parochial school stuff going on with, um, with the, the Catholic, Roman Catholics and with the Jewish uh, children, but it wasn't until that book 
that we were starting to see. Now, there were intimations before. We had warnings from A.A. A. Hodge and Machen about public schooling. But when Dr. Restroni was able to bring the contemporary aspects of it all together in one place, that was the fuse that was lit that made things to move forward, and it was just great. And if you did not get to hear uh, Chris Zimmerman and uh, Andrea Schwartz uh, speaking about the nature of the American uh, system by Rush Dooney, Ground Control was very gracious to put up the link so that you can actually hear the entire thing at your leisure at that link. We like to provide those kind of things. Uh, if there are no more, I could probably take one more quick question. If there are no, none appear in the next moments, I'm going to go ahead and close us, and we'll see everyone next week. Uh, it was a good session. Again, you can send your questions in advance to ask.calcedon at calcedon.edu. And then those pop into my mailbox. There we go. Connect with the Book of the Month Club. Uh, these are the ways that we try to provide service uh, to you. There's going to be a very interesting article, and I'm, I'm going to steal Mark's thunder for a moment. I shouldn't, but I'm going to. I get to proofread uh, the Calcedon Report before it comes out. Sorry, it's backwards here. But uh, he says this, uh, opening up. Books have had a major impact on modern history. Books archive a reasoned position to which later generations can return. No matter how a book is received in its time, it is a touchstone that represents a summation of what was, in some cases, a lifetime of research. A serious book with cogent arguments remains as a silent witness long after its author's lifetime. I think this tells us everything we need to know about why Dr. Richardson's books are still being read today. So no questions. Appreciate all the questions that we got. Continue to send them in advance, and uh, we will see everyone next week. God bless all of you, and continue to be strong in his service. Let not your hands lie down. Uh, and don't have feeble knees. Be strong in his service. And uh, to that end, that's why we're here, to help equip you for that. Talk to you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Selbredi. We pray that you have been edified by the content that you've heard on this episode. Please visit calcedon.edu for some great resources and reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you in all that you do.